All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. We've spent quite a bit of time in this chapter, certainly a lot to discuss and look at. And this morning we're going to finish the chapter, but I'd like to just summarize chapter 3 and then uh, we'll get into verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Uh, It says that in those days uh, that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea in his baptism that he would offer to anyone who would come would be a baptism of repentance. And... uh, And it says that many would come to him from Jerusalem, from Judea, and all the regions around the Jordan. They would come out to this desert place uh, to be baptized of John for repentance and for the remission of sins. That was what his job, if you will, was. That was his ministry. That's what God had called him to do. And in the process of doing that, we know that the scribes and the Pharisees also came out And John, by the Spirit of God, knowing their hearts, they weren't really coming for repentance sake because they thought that they were holy already and that everybody else was beneath them. And so John had some pretty harsh words for them uh, and, and hopefully it would jostle them to bring them to repentance. And we know that that didn't really work. Um, because their hearts had become so hardened. In fact, they would not only be uh, instrumental in encouraging John's death, and ultimately Herod would kill him, would behead him in the prison at Mercurius, but these same Pharisees would be the ones that would stand up against their own Savior, their own Messiah, Jesus Christ, who had been prophesied for hundreds of years, even a few thousand years. They would stand up against him and say, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man to be ruler over us. And isn't that a sad commentary when we're no longer willing to have the Lord be ruler over us? I mean, after all, when you think about Genesis and you think about how God created man in his image, we belong to him, even if we are not believers in Jesus Christ. We have to remember that we belong to him. We were created in his image. God created us, and therefore it behooves me, it's my responsibility to get to know who this one is that gave me life. And once I do that, I also come to, need to come to the understanding that when he offers me salvation because of my lost state that I chose, when I chose in my rebellion, when you chose rebellion over being submitted to the will of God, that created a problem, didn't it? And, there, and therefore, we, des- we deserve hell. We deserve judgment. And not because God is insecure, but because he's a holy God and he demands perfection. And you and I, because we are not perfect, cannot give him that perfection. And that is precisely why Jesus came, the only perfect spotless lamb of God who took the price, who paid the penalty for my sin and your sin. And that sacrifice on the cross, God the Father had respect to. And he looked at that and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And everything he does, I put my stamp of approval on. Wouldn't that be a great thing? at the end of the day, for the Lord to do that. And it's possible in Christ, even in our imperfection. Because when we we sin, what do we do? Do we wallow in it and continue to perpetuate it? No, when we sin, we confess it, just like the Bible says. And the promise is there that if we confess, he is faithful then to do what? To forgive us of all unrighteousness and then to cleanse us 
from that thing. And he'll never look upon it again. We may look upon it again, and, but God will never look upon that confessed sin again. That specific act, he'll never look upon it again. Because that's what he promised. And that's the efficacy, the, 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 the power of the blood of Christ. And so these Pharisees, they come to him. And he is very... He's not easy with them at all. But he says, I indeed baptize you with fire under repentance, but he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And in his winnowing, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And we looked at that last week. And we are those, the grain that is, that is gathered at the threshing floor. When the Jews would, would thresh wheat, they would take the wheat and they would do this with it. They would take the head of the grain and they would do this. And the chaff would fall off and then the grain would fall onto a, a mat or some kind of large thing that they could gather it up. But the chaff would just blow away. And, and they would do that at the, on the top of hills where the wind was blowing making it easier to separate the grain from the chaff. And folks, you and I are that grain. And he's going to gather us into his barn. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be with him forever. In spite of the things that you know about yourself, in spite of your sin and your your failures, we need to come to Christ and confess those things. And he will bring us to him. But those who are unbelieving will be the chaff that will be quenched up. And we remember we looked at that. That was a baptism of fire. And that's going to come upon the unbelievers, not the believers. And so finally we get to verse 13 of this. And it says that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John excuse me, tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And notice, then he allowed him. And then verse 16, when he had been baptized, notice, when Jesus had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, like a dove, and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you think God is, is, is blessed with the son? <laughs> I think he is. Now let's go back to verse 13 here. It says, These, then Jesus came from Galilee. Remember, Galilee was in the northern part of Israel where Mary and Joseph, who uh, Jesus' caregiver, uh, where they lived in Nazareth. And remember that Joseph was a carpenter. And so Jesus, from the moment of 12 years old up to this point in time, was submitting himself to his mom and dad, more than likely working with Joseph as a carpenter. So Jesus was a strong man. He wasn't this effeminate thing that you see on all the pictures. No, he was a man's man. He was a strong man. But now there comes a time at 30 years of age, we believe, when he would come now to John at the Jordan and be baptized of him. And John's gospel tells us that these things were done in Bethabara 
or Bethany, and the exact location of this place is not really known, but it's north of the Dead Sea, somewhere along there where the children of Israel crossed over during the Exodus. Somewhere in that area, there was a ford. A ford is a shallow place in the river where the water's not running so hard and there's rocks and, and it's shallow enough where they can actually gather around and have a baptism like this. In fact, Bethabra means house of the Ford, not the Ford F-150. And you guys are going, yeah, it's Father's Day. F-350, Hemi. No, this is the house of the Ford, this very shallow place. And this is where John was doing these baptisms and and so um, Jesus comes down, and, and uh, you know, one thing we need to look at in this last few verses is, is the fact that no other king in history fulfilled the office of king, prophet, and priest except for Jesus. All three of those offices, king, prophet, and priest. We know that David was a king. We know that David was a king, but he was also a prophet. He penned many of the Psalms, the majority of the Psalms that we have, and many of them are prophetic, and many of them even, more importantly, are messianic. When we look at Psalm 2, when we look at Psalm 16, or Psalm 23 through 25, when we look at Psalm 40, Psalm 109, Psalm 110, to just name a few, all of these are messianic, prophetic psalms. So we know that David was a king and he was also a prophet. In Acts chapter 2, remember when Peter was speaking on the day of Pentecost, what did he tell the people in Jerusalem? It tells us in Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 29. Let me read it to you. He says, men and brethren, let me freely speak to you about the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us today. To this day, therefore, being a prophet, notice that Peter, under the influence of the Spirit, calls David a prophet. Yes, and he was. Again, many of the Psalms were prophetic, God using him. So David was a king, and he was a prophet. But what about John the Baptist? He was a priest and a prophet, wasn't he? We looked at Luke chapter 1, and we looked at the lineage of of, of uh, John the Baptist. We know that his father was Zacharias. His mother was Elizabeth. They both came from the line of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. And so John the Baptist himself, had he not gone out into the desert and, and did this ministry of this, this bringing the children of Israel to repentance in preparation for Christ's arrival on the scene, he would have been back with his father Zacharias attending to the temple needs and the services in the temple. So John is a prophet, and he's also a priest. In Matthew chapter 11, remember what it says. It says that Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? Did you go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed with fine clothing? He says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet. And he would go on in verse 11 of that same chapter and say, Assuredly, I say unto you, among those born of women, there has not risen a one greater than John the Baptist, but he who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John was a prophet. He was also a priest. But Jesus, and we're going to see him in this passage today, fulfilling his role as priest. 
We know that he was a king. We know that he was a prophet. In fact, in Mark chapter 15, what does it tell us? When Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, remember Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews then? And Jesus said, it is as you say. Does Jesus ever say that he was the king of the Jews or that he was God in the flesh? Yes, he has. Here's a good example. He is the king of the Jews. He is the long-awaited prophet. He is the Messiah, the Logos, the word of God come flesh. And Revelation, it tells us in chapter 19, verse 16, excuse me, at the second coming of Jesus to the earth with all of the redeemed, with you and I. What does it say? And he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, and here is his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is king. Even in the prophet Daniel, written in Babylon, several hundreds of years before Jesus would come to the forefront. Know therefore and understand, Daniel 9.25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, that literally in the Hebrew is Messiah the king. That's literally what it means. Jesus is king. Is he king over your life? I hope so. And I hope for every unbeliever in the world that Jesus becomes king and savior over them. And he is a prophet. He is a prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, you can write this down. I'm going to read it to you for time's sake because we're going to take communion today. But he's a prophet. In fact, he is the prophet, specific the prophet. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, it says, God speaking through Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet, uh, raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, Moses says, from your brethren. Him you shall hear, and according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken to you is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he will speak all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So Jesus is the prophet, but he's also our high priest. Hebrews, what does it tell us? Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, the Levitical priests, when they began their ministry, they began at the age of 30, and they were consecrated by water and anointing. And we see that in Leviticus. In fact, let me just read to you something in Leviticus chapter 8. This is very similar to what Jesus went through, but I want to make a point clear here, is that what the, what the Levites went through as they were washed and as they were anointed, because we're going to see that David, or excuse me, Jesus was baptized with water and he was also anointed by the Spirit. They are different, Okay. We have to understand that they're very different things, but there's a similarity here that is obvious because we see that God is allowing Christ to fulfill that role as priest. 
And we'll look at that more shortly. But what does it say in Leviticus? That Moses brought Aaron and his sons and he washed them with water. This was part of their consecration before they would continue their duties in the temple. And, uh, and he put the tunic on them, and he girded them with, with sash, and clothed them with a robe, and put the ephod on them, and girded them with the, the, um, the woven band of the ephod, and with it they tied the ephod on him. And then down in verse 10 of that chapter, it says this, that Moses took the anointing oil, and we know that oil is symbolic of the Spirit of God, isn't it? And Moses took the anointing oil... And he anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And then he sprinkled some of it on the altar and anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the laver and the base to consecrate them. But finally he anoints, he pours some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So Jesus was also anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was not washed uh, in, a, in a ceremonial way like the, like the Levites, but he was baptized with water. And then when he came out of the water, the Bible says that it was then that the Spirit of God came upon him, anointing him, just like very similar to what we see with the priests of Aaron. And so Jesus is our high priest. And in undergoing John's baptism, Jesus was acting as our sin-bearer. Sin bearer, but we have to make a, a, a very important distinction. Jesus' baptism did not pay the price for our sin. The fact that he was baptized was not what paid the price for our sin. That was phase one, if you will. But phase two was Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And that was the ultimate and final stage where the, the plan of redemption would be brought about and Jesus would secure for us salvation through his blood. And because Jesus was crucified on our behalf, we are to crucify our old nature as well, aren't we? When as he was baptized and laid in the grave... And as he rose again from the grave, when we are baptized, we are putting to death this old man, this, this rascal <laughs> of our nature. And what does it tell us in Romans? Does anybody have a sin nature here this morning? Raise your hand if you do. You know, I, I hope all of you raise your hand because that is a requirement. That is the prerequisite to heavenly, your heavenly classroom is the prerequisite is, I'm a sinner, 101. I'm a sinner. I was born in sin. Paul tells us in Romans, do you not know that as many of us that were baptized in Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And therefore, we were buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. And that is what Christian baptism is. Very different, remember, from John's baptism. John's baptism being one of repentance. But when you and I are baptized today, we are baptized into Christ, which is certainly a baptism of repentance, but even more so because we are baptized into Christ's death and we are risen in newness of life just as he was resurrected. And here is the the encouragement for us today because in Colossians it tells then, if then you were raised with Christ, and here's the challenge of this, 
Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. And Christian, we need to do that. We need to set our mind and our eyes on the things of heaven instead of all of this horizontal stuff. And it's very natural for us to do that, isn't it? To look at everything because we live on this terra firma. We live on this earth. And we have struggles and trials. We see things coming. We have fears and insecurities. All these things are very real. And and, and we don't need to act like they don't exist. Let's just be honest. But the more we get our eyes focused on him, the more we know his character, the the very character of Jesus and God, it's going to make all these things not really such a big deal anymore. They are, don't get me wrong, but you understand what I'm saying. These fears and things can wipe most people out. Many people are on pills. Because they are in, they're, they're so distraught in fear, they've got to cope with it somehow. They've got to take drugs. They've got to have alcohol. They've got to be engaged in illicit sexual activity with many partners to quell this instability, this instability, this fear, this angst in their life. Do you have days like that? Where you feel it, you feel the angst, you feel the fear. I do. (laughs) Do you find yourself being a little unnerved by all the things that are going on in our country? If you're alive and you're breathing, you ought to, and you will. But where do we go? Where do we go? Peter said it the best, Lord, where can we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. Is there anywhere else to go? People, yes, they go to those other places, and and they don't do them any good. They're very temporal fixes. Shooting heroin in their arms in San Francisco or in here in Rochester, New York, wherever it is, it's a temporary fix. And it's a lousy temporary fix because every time you do it, it just grabs you and pulls you deeper into hell. But we can go to Christ. Are you going to Christ or are you trying to cope with it in your own way? Are you trying to make it work somehow in your own strength? And see, I can't do that. And I know that you can't either. Let's go to our high priest. Let's go to the king of kings. He knows. He knows. He says, therefore, put to death the members which are on the earth, fornication and uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness. And then he goes on in Colossians chapter 8 and says, now put off all these too, anger and wrath and malice. Anybody have anger? Anybody seen anger lately in the streets in front of a justice home? Have you seen anger? Are you experiencing it yourself? How are we doing with that? With malice and and wrath and and filthy language how are we doing these days with all the the deceit and the injustice that we are seeing all around us on such a dramatic level how are we dealing with that are we filled with anger are you aware that we have a dual citizenship we do we are citizens of the united states of america but guess what we are also citizens of what We're citizens of heaven. But let me ask the the question, what citizenship are you working the hardest for? Now, don't get me wrong. I love my country. I'm a patriot of patriots. Or at least I think I am. You know, I see myself covered with paint and, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, that, 
Never mind. I love my country. I'm a patriot, but I got to be careful of which citizenship is the most important in God's eyes. Does God want uh, people to be a Democrat or a Republican, or does he want them to be citizens of heaven, which lasts for eternity? Yes, one is very temporal. The other is eternal. My suggestion is that we work hard on both, but we need to remember that one is more important and give the greater of your energy to that one thing. But do both. It's not one or the other. Some people say, well, you've got you've to do one or the other. Well, I say do both because we are called to be salt and light on this earth. And God, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is what is keeping, restraining the darkness. Do you understand that? The Spirit of God in us is restraining, restraining the darkness that is coming upon the earth. But guess what? What does it tell us in 2 Thessalonians 2? That when the restrainer is removed, the flood of cesspool begins. There'll be no restraint whatsoever. Think of that. That is scary. In a very short period of time, this world is going to be a complete and utter mess because you and I have been raptured out of here. But my suggestion to you is that we do both, but we cannot lose track and lose the idea of which one is more important. There's no competition of which one is more important because I could care less about whether somebody is a Democrat, an Independent, or even a Republican. They need Christ because they're going to spend an eternity somewhere and God wants them to be with him. Even though they may choose something different, his desire, his heart, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance through faith in Jesus Christ. So while we are on this earth, we are to be salt and light. And we are to live to act and act as citizens of heaven as well. And that goes way above and beyond all the other political stuff. Because there's going to be rewards in heaven. And that's all I care about. I care about seeing him. I care about hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Which one is more important? They're both important, but there's clearly one that's more important. We ought to be about both businesses. We are citizens of two different countries. But one is more important. And we are to put on the new man, the tender mercies, the kindness, putting on love. And again, because Jesus was crucified on our behalf, we ought to crucify our old nature and live unto Christ, right? So what, let's look back in our text now at verse 14. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized of you, and are you coming to me? Matthew's gospel, out of all four gospels that record the baptism of, of Jesus, this is the only one where it records that John is kind of refuting Jesus a little bit, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and you come to me wanting to be baptized? John knew, John knew that there was something wrong with this picture. In fact, what did he tell us in John chapter 1? John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he had sent, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is 
is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. It was revealed to John, and that's why he had to say, there's something wrong with this picture, Jesus. I'm a sinful man, but you are perfect and holy. You are the Messiah, the the word of God become flesh. You are everything that the prophets have been speaking about. But notice Jesus answered in verse 15, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. This baptism of Jesus was like an oxymoron because he ought to be the one doing the baptizing. And why would Jesus, who is without sin, be the one to submit under John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance? And we We've already looked at this over the last couple weeks, but we know that his baptism was one of repentance. It tells us that it's a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins in a couple of different places, in Luke's gospel as well. So why would Jesus submit to this baptism seeing that he is the Messiah, God come in human flesh? I'm not going to answer the question yet. I'm going to continue to lead you like a string of pearls And we'll get to the answer because Jesus obviously wasn't in need of repentance. Like everyone else. Everyone else is in need of repentance except for him. In fact, the teeth of the gospel is that we were born in sin and thus sinners by nature. That's why we need to be born again. But the Bible condemns all under sin except for Jesus. He was our sin bearer, but he had no sin. What does it tell us in Romans? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Psalm 14 tells us the fool has said in his heart, no, God. The word there is is in italics, which means it wasn't in the original manuscript. So it could be accurately saying the fool has said in his heart, no thanks. That is the biblical definition of a fool. But notice, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does, God, does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. But here's the answer. They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Ouch. That's who we are. And you may not like that. But that, again, is a prerequisite to coming to Christ. You have to know that you're a sinner. And it's very easy for me to confess. I'll be the first one in line. I'm a sinner, and I've sinned a lot. And God says, I know. (laughs) I've got a record of all your sins, Rob, but guess what? Because you have put your faith in my son, his blood covers all your sin, and I don't see it. So you're free. Welcome to the kingdom. And he says that to you as well. Isn't that encouraging? That's what he said. That's the promise of God. That is not just our feelings. That is not some kind of pipe dream of a Christian's wish list. No, that is what the word of God says. That is the case. But the Bible also proclaims that Jesus is God and without sin. What does it tell us in Hebrews 4? That he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. In Corinthians, God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Peter, he says, but... You were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver from the aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So, for the last time, why was Jesus submitted to John's baptism? And the answer 
is to identify himself with fallen man as a high priest. He identifies himself with fallen man. And Jesus is the good shepherd. A good shepherd does what? He goes before his sheep and they follow him because he cares for them and they trust in him. A good shepherd is one who leads by example. Jesus didn't get baptized and say, well, you know, um, you know he, he didn't refrain from getting baptized and telling us to get baptized. No, he submitted himself to it as well. Because like a good shepherd, he goes out before his sheep. Any good shepherd will go out into the middle of the field. Before he brings his sheep in, he's going to walk around and he's going to pick out all the poisonous plants that he knows about that are going to hurt the sheep. He looks for all of those kinds of poisonous weeds that they're going to, because they'll eat anything. They're like men on Father's Day. They'll just eat anything. I don't care if it's hot dogs, hamburgers, um, uh, steak, whatever. Just put it in front of him. He's going to devour it. He's going to eat it, right? But sheep do that as well. And if there is some religious man or guru who is coming to you saying, do what I say, but don't do it as I do, you better leave him in the dust. You better leave him in the dust. And men, we are to lead our families by example, aren't we? We need to be in the word. We need to be praying and caring for our wives and our kids. We need to be faithful fathers and husbands, being faithful in the church, being an example and an ambassador of Christ in the workplace. And let me tell you that good godly examples are what we need today because there are very few. We need to lead by example. In John's gospel, you might want to write this down, but let me read it to you. Jesus, in John chapter 10, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Notice, they, he's able to lead them because they trust in him, because he takes care of them. He goes before them because that's what a shepherd does. And then he says, and when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Do you know the voice of Christ leading you? Either through the word or in the still small voice in your heart. Do you know that voice? Are you following the good shepherd, the greatest example that ever was? He also goes on in that chapter in verse 10, and he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Men, are we willing to lay down our lives, our aspirations, our hopes, even our, the things that we like to do, our hobbies? Are we willing to lay those things down to serve our family? To be more concerned about them than we are ourselves. It doesn't mean that you can't have fun, but the, the, the first mandate is for us to take care of them, to lead by example. But unfortunately, many men in America aren't with their families. And sometimes it's not their fault either. But there's so many young people without fathers. And dads, you, for you, those of you here today, your job and your, what you do is so important. Never forget that. It is the greatest thing. And the children of this country need dads. They need dads. They need a good shepherd. Just as Jesus was our example. He is the example. He is the prototype. He is the one we need to follow. He goes before. We need to go before. We need to be the best that we can be. 
And Jesus says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And see, earthly godly shepherds that we see in the world are okay to follow as long as they are following Christ. But if they are not, we need to leave them behind. And you follow Christ. Even Paul said that, didn't he, in Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me, Paul said, just as I imitate Christ. And the obvious idea behind this is if I am not imitating Christ, then by all means, don't imitate me. Don't follow me. In John 13, remember that night before, uh, on the, the Last Supper before Jesus was taken, what did he tell his disciples? You know, he went around and washed their feet, and at the end of that he says, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Are you willing to do the least task? See, this is why Jesus was our example. And he went before us. He didn't tell us, you need to do this. I haven't done it, but you need to do this. No, he says, I'm going to show you what to do, and I'm going to do it myself. And that's why he would say to John, we need to do this, John. I know you, under, I, I know, you know who I am, and I know why you are, you're doing what you're doing, but we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. The, the people were waiting for the Messiah. They knew the Messiah was perfect, that he was God in the flesh. And he says, I need to make sure that I identify with those people that God is bringing to you, John, to baptize for the repentance. I need to identify with them. And see, that's what a high priest does. In 1 Peter 2, it says, for, and he's speaking about suffering for doing good. He says, For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. What? I don't want to do that. I don't want to follow in his steps of suffering. Well, I'm sorry, but that's part of the package. And the sooner we realize that suffering is part of our walk with Christ. Being demeaned by a coworker, being put down because you're a, a Bible thumper, that you're a Jesus freak, that you're a, a fundamental pre-trib, pre-millennial, conservative, whatever. Let them put you down. They put Jesus down. In fact, they killed him. In 1 Peter 2, he says, For to this you were called, leaving Christ leaving us an example. And that's what he was. He was the example. And John initially resisted him, but he finally gave way to it. And, um, and Jesus would willingly uh, submit it to this, or, or excuse me, John willingly submitted to having Jesus be baptized by him. And, and we'll see this later on in Matthew chapter 20. Again, Jesus uh, tells us there was a time when the sons of Zebedee came with their mother to Jesus. And she said to them, and Jesus said to her, what do you wish? And she said, grant these my two sons of mine may sit on the right hand and on the left when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said, we are able. And he said to them, you will indeed drink of my cup, this cup of wrath that he would experience on the cross. You, you guys are going to see that as well. But to give you the seed is not mine to give 
He said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. And yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And isn't Jesus consistently showing himself to be the servant, washing the feet, going before, before the others, doing, not just telling them, do what I tell you to do, but he, he will actually do it himself and be an example? That's what he does. And, that's what, and then later on, he actually confirms this by what I'm reading to you now. He says, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, notice, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's a great model for us, isn't he? Men, he's a great model. And for women, he's a great model for us. And if he came rather to serve rather than to be served, how much more should we follow that model? So finally, in verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Now, there is some speculation as to the, the way that Jesus was baptized. Was he fully immersed or, or was water poured upon his head? Only the Gospels of Matthew and Mark give us any kind of reference as to the mode in which Jesus was baptized. And again, this is a small point, but it's worth noting. In Mark's Gospel, it says, Immediately coming up, or literally coming out from, or out of the water, he saw the heavens after he was baptized. He went out of the water. And then he was, the Spirit of God lighted upon him. Now that kind of blows away some of the images that we've seen. Some of the movies that we've seen. And honestly, this week I discovered this and it was really interesting because the Greek language, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar and neither are you, but it is important to look at some of these things. And if you look at it, there seems to be a difference. He was baptized and then coming out of the water, then the Spirit came upon him, but yet we see the pictures. And again, there's nothing wrong here, okay? This is not something that's going to send anybody to hell, okay? This is just a minute detail, but we see Jesus in the Jordan and baptizing or, or they're submerging him or bringing him up. It doesn't matter the, the method in which they do it, but it is important to look at it because there'll be some and say, well, this is the only way to do it. And if, you, if, if you don't do it this way, it's not going to stick. I don't believe that. Now, when we baptize, we do full immersion. I, 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 like, I like doing that because of the symbolism of it. So could have Jesus, in the shallow area in, of the Bethabra, the, 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 the house of the Ford, could he have been submerged? Probably not. Did John just grab the water and pour it over his head? Possibly. But I love the symbolism because as Jesus, and again, we, we've done it both ways. During COVID, instead of having uh, COVID floating around in this um, 80 degree hot tub that we have, we did it outside and we just poured pitchers of water. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we can, I love the picture of going down under because when we go down under, just as it says to us in Colossians and Romans 6, we go under in baptism. We get put under. We, 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 we submit to that death of the old self, like death when Jesus went in and to the ground. And then when he came up out of the water, newness of life. 
I like the symbolism of that, but we can't be dogmatic. We can't be legalistic about it either because people do this. But in the original Greek, there is nothing stating that he was submerged and came up. It doesn't say. I've read this passage lots, and I always thought he was fully submerged, but the original language, the grammar and the verb tenses all lead to the fact that that when, when it says he came up, it literally means he went out of the water. He stood on the Jordan, and then the Spirit came upon him. Again, just a fine point, but it's worth noting. And he's not limited to how we do it either. And we even notice that, you know, when we think of the experience of Jesus, the Holy Spirit coming upon him at baptism and remaining on him, we shouldn't think that this has to be the experience of every believer for us either. Now, when we get baptized, obviously, we've talked about this. Jesus' baptism was different from the way we are baptized today. We are baptized into Christ today. But sometimes people are, when they're baptized in Christ, sometimes the Spirit of God comes upon them immediately. Sometimes it happens later, days later, a week later, a month later, sometimes it happens in reverse. And let me give you an example of that. And this is really kind of interesting because we like to put things in a box and we like to say, God only does this, he does this, and and that's all he does. And don't go out of that box. Right? I like neat and clean where everything makes sense. But have you found as you study the Bible that the Lord is like mercury? He just kind of slides, it's like mercury on on a table, you try to pin him down and say, well, he only do thing, does things like this. And he goes, oh, really? Have you read so-and-so? Have you read Acts chapter, have you, have you read Acts chapter 10? <laughs> what does it say in Acts chapter 10? Peter was at Cornelius' house, and notice the order of this. Again, this is just an interesting thing to consider because we, we always think, well, this has to happen, this, and sometimes it is, but in this case, it's not. What did it say? While Peter was still speaking these words at Cornelius' house, notice the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. So they were baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. They were already believers, but now the Spirit of God comes upon them. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues, and they magnified God. And then Peter, notice what he says after God does this. He says to them, Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized as we have received the Holy Spirit, just as, as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Christian baptism. After the Spirit of God had already come upon them. So there's no formula. We can't put things in a box. And when we look at verse 16 there, at the very end when it says, And behold, the heavens were opened to them, and, uh, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Notice it doesn't say a dove, like a dove. Whatever it was, it was gentle. It was in a bodily form. Somehow it came upon him gently like a dove. And this, again, is a, a fulfillment of Isaiah 11. What does Isaiah 11 tell us? And again, is this any surprise? Because Matthew's gospel is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. So he's pointing to the Scripture. 96 times in this gospel alone, he's pointing to the Old Testament Scriptures, proclaiming who Jesus is. What does it tell us in Isaiah 11? And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, 
Remember, this was written 700 years before David was even born, but it mentions his father by name when he wasn't even, um, uh, or I'm sorry, I, I, I made a mistake there. I'm thinking my head's getting all jumbled. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> David and his father had already come and gone, but now Isaiah, around 700 B.C., says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And notice what it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall do what? Shall rest upon him. Didn't that happen just now as we read in, John, in, in Matthew's gospel? The Spirit of God lighted upon him, fulfilling that scripture. And then suddenly a voice from heaven came and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And for those who were present that day, they would recognize the messianic flavor of this. They would recognize what this was about because in Psalm 2 what does it say I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me you are my son you are my begotten son you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will give you the inheritance of the nations and the ends of the earth for your possession but I like that the Lord has said to me you are my son today I have begotten you as God said that from heaven and all those there who may have heard that they would be thinking of Psalm 2. They would also probably be thinking of Isaiah 42, where it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Don't you just love that, how the word of God, the Old Testament? In fact, I'd like to make a plea with you. Would you come out on Thursday nights? If you're only here on Sunday mornings, you're only getting half of it. Because on Thursday nights, we're in the, New, in the Old Testament. And believe me, the Old Testament, I love the Old Testament. And there is so much richness in the Old Testament. Confirming these things, teaching us, it's amazing. Would you come out? Right now we're in Kings. What do you do on Thursday nights? Come on out. And set, let's get in the Word together. On Sunday mornings, we're in the, in the New Testament. And that's good. However, there is also another part of the Bible that's equally as valid, and that's the Old Testament. It's important for you to understand the Old Testament. In fact, if you don't understand the Old Testament and haven't read it, the, a book like Revelation, the very last book of the New Testament, is going to make no sense to you. So come out on Thursday nights at 7. But notice in verse 16 and 17, all three persons of the Godhead are present. Isn't this beautiful? Here is where the Trinity is in action. Certainly in the first chapter of Genesis, but, and there's other places, many other places, but here is one where all three are present because God the Father is speaking from heaven, Jesus is the one being baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. All three members of the Trinity, the Godhead, are present in this. Beginning of Jesus' ministry. Isn't that awesome? So for those of you who say, well, the Trinity is not in the Bible. You won't find the word Trinity. I would agree with you. You're not going to find it. It's like the word rapture. You're not going to find the word rapture unless you read the Latin Vulgate. Anybody read the Latin Vulgate in Latin? Sit there with your, your, your Bible open and you're reading Latin in the morning with your glasses. And if you're reading Latin, you've got to put it down like this. You've got you to gotta look smarter than... I am, right? But you're not going to find it. 
but it's everywhere. The rapture in the Bible, it's there. The Trinity, here's one really good example. It's there. Undeniable. Oh, the Trinity doesn't exist. Yes, it does. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. But let's finish with Matthew 17 and then we'll take communion. Notice, when God says to, uh, God the Father says to Jesus, behold, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. There is another time where Jesus, or where God the Father spoke this uh, to the son, and it was during his transfiguration. When Jesus was glorified in front of Peter, James, and John on the mountain there in Galilee somewhere. We don't know which mountain it was. Some think it was Hermon. Some think it might have been Mount Arbel. I kind of hope that it was Mount Arbel because I've actually been up there and it's a beautiful place. Love that place. Oh my goodness. But he was up there and he was transfigured. He was, a metamorphosis occurred and his, 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 his clothing glistened. There was something that happened. He was glorified right in front of them. But notice what it says in in Matthew 17. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them into a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured, or a metamorphosis occurred before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And then Peter being the impetuous one, and, I, and this is probably what I would do. Peter answered, notice, nobody answer, asked a question, but he's answering. I like that. Do you like that? Nobody asked a question, but he's going to answer. See, that's just the impetuousness of Peter. And it reminds me a lot of me, actually, to my chagrin. <laughs> but I'm growing, I'm learning. I'm learning to be more quiet than opening my mouth. Except for Sunday mornings and Thursday nights. Hopefully. But notice Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here if you wish. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, God the Father shows up. And I love this. See, Peter is thinking, this is great. Let's have three tents up here, three Coleman tents. And we'll have a little, you know, there are Bunsen burners out here and they can fry up sausage and everything else. Let's do that, Lord. And the Lord's going, um, there's a problem here, Peter. Do you understand that I'm God? And God the Father is going, do you understand who you're speaking to? Why are you putting those two men, great men, Elijah and Moses, great men of God, they did a great service. Why are you putting them on the same level as Jesus Christ? No, you don't need three tents, you need one tent for him. (laughs) And he's coming back and he's going to establish his tent in Jerusalem in the millennial reign, it's going to be a big tent, the best tent that ever been seen, a tabernacle, a temple, dwarfs all the other temple complexes ever written. But what does God, the, God the Father shows up and says, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when the disciples heard it, what did they do? They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Can you imagine being in the presence of, of Jesus or the Holy, you know, it doesn't matter, but can you imagine God the Father speaking, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you're in a mist and you're covered in this mist. The very natural thing to do is to fall on the ground with your mouth on the dust. It'd be very natural and very fitting actually for me to be vacuuming the mountain. Change my name to Hoover. 
or Bissell, Mr. Bissell. But he says it to him. This is my beloved son. At the beginning of his ministry, this is my beloved son. Getting close to the the middle, the end of his ministry, this is my beloved son. Was God the Father pleased with Jesus? You better believe it. So if Jesus was willing to go through and be an example for us, ought we not to be those examples? Men and ladies, ought we not to be the example? To be the one to go before and not just say, do as I say, but do as I do. There's power when we do. If I tell my daughter, if I, if I was a smoker and I told my daughter, hey, listen, don't smoke when you're, you know, when you're, when you're older. Don't smoke. She's going to be like, okay, I believe you. But she's not believing me. But if I put those things out and I say, you know what, that's the last one. I'm never going to do it again. Because it harms me. It's expensive. It doesn't do anything for me. It's not going to send me to hell. But I'm gonna, I choose to do that. Now you don't do the same thing as well. Now there's power in that, especially when they see you going through the withdrawal and you still hold fast <laughs> when you're shaking like a leaf and you're trying to drink an iced tea and it's just flying all over you because, and then after a while it goes away. But be the example in everything, especially men. Let us be examples. Today's our day. Let's seize it. And it's not just a day for men, it's a day for all of us because every day is a, a day that the Lord wants to work. And so if the worship team could come on up and what we're gonna do is during the song of worship, please come up and take the bread and the cup, bring it back to your seat and we'll take it together. And can I just say this, if you've never been baptized, if you've never in, you went through Christian baptism, we're gonna have a baptism picnic this summer. And we'll let you know the dates next Sunday, I'm sure. Or maybe even this week. I'll send it out. But if you've never been baptized, would you pray about getting baptized? That it might be a witness to those who come and see you. Invite your friends, invite your family, invite everybody that you can think of, if they're willing, and you be baptized. Why? Is it, is it the only way to get to heaven? No. You're, if you're a believer in Christ, you're going to heaven. But did Jesus command us to do it nonetheless? Yes, he did. So I want to do that. And would you pray about doing the same thing? And so um, why don't we go ahead and worship, and then if you could, please come up and grab the elements and take them back to your chairs. We'll take them together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul speaking to the Corinthians, he said to them in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Notice that he received and then he gave. And that's always the way it is, right? We receive from the Lord and then we can give away what we have received from him. But he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, and do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Notice 
The New Testament, after Jesus was, was killed on the, on the cross, and after he raised from the grave, the New Testament era began because a testament has of no value until the death of the testator. The one who makes the will, that doesn't come in force until after his death. And so now he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's do that. And notice what he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim it. By doing what we have done, we proclaim what he was going to do just hours from that very moment that he instituted this last supper, this new addition to the Passover meal. He made it, he turned it on its end and said, I am the Passover lamb. I'm the one. And we remember his death until he comes. How could we forget Jesus? How could we forget what you have done for us? Lord, I pray that you would just do that work in each of us, Lord, that there'd be a resounding depth and a resounding gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts, Lord. Because the truth of the matter is, Lord, that we'll never see death or hell. We'll never see eternal death. We may see physical death, but we're not going to see the lake of fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. We are not going to see that place, but rather, Lord, we will be with you in glory where there are pleasures forevermore, holy things, good things. And Lord, we thank you for what these tokens represent. We thank you for you, Lord. And Lord, on this Father's Day, we want to say thank you for being the greatest father a people could have. Lord, you've been a father to us, many of us who, whose fathers left or perhaps passed away from the scene early on, like myself, Lord, and thank you've been my father all this time, guiding and directing Lord, how we thank you for that. Would you please encourage us today and strengthen our faith in you? In Jesus' name, we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen.